Well, good morning. We, uh, we continue our time in Romans uh, this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 10. And... Uh, Wish me luck. Uh, so um, I'm excited uh, to be here with you and, and, and to open up God's word uh, with you. Uh, pastors Dave and Chad have, have throughout this series been reminding us of a few things. Um, one of which is, is sort of this thesis that seems to run throughout uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's that the gospel is God's power. It is his power. And his letter to the Romans, uh, it, it really is all about um, finding a centrifugal force around that. And, and Paul is, is begging his readership, and even us today, to believe in the one that he is singing his praises over. So if you're ready, let's uh, read and, and, and chop up uh, Romans 10 together. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. It'll be on the screens as well. I'll be reading the whole chapter. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer, for, prayer to God for them, that is his kinsmen, that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they do not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law. For Righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because... If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It is as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who do not seek me. I have shown myself to those who do not ask for me. That's us. But of Israel, he says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God is forever. Let's pray. Father, 
Son and Spirit, meet us here this morning. Jesus, would you be a good shepherd to your sheep? If there's anyone here tonight or tonight, today, that would hear your voice for the first time, make it clear and plain. Holy Spirit, tend to our needs according to this text. Most of all, connect us to Jesus. Help us to see his beauty, his power, his perfection. Help us to see that he is the joy of our lives. Convince us of what is most true. Would you do that through this word, your word, in Jesus' name, amen. In our culture, uh, stubbornness is often seen as a virtue, right? I mean, it's, it, uh, if you're stubborn, you're kind of seen as being resilient or you've got sort of a feistiness about you. Um, and, and, and I guess you could say that in some respects, stubbornness isn't all bad. Um, but, but, if, but if I were to put a word on uh, this text, um, Israel's problem is their stubbornness. Maybe you know about, or this is actually you, and I'm calling you out this morning. Are you one of those people that just absolutely refuses medicine? Like, you know, my back hurts. Nah, no, that is beneath me. <laughs> is that you? This is the type of stubbornness talked about in this text. I think about this sort of, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what you call it, sort of a moral tale or something like this. It's obviously not historically true. It's a, it's a picture, and I want to share it with you to sort of help us get into this text. There was a man, uh, a man, uh, sitting on the roof of a house, and the floodwaters had come up, right? I guess maybe think of Katrina or something terrible like that. And he, and he sits on the, on the roof of his house, and he begins to beg God to save him. Help me. Rescue me. And lo and behold, a, a dinghy boat comes by and says, come on, man, hop on in. And the guy on the roof says, oh, no, thanks. God's going to save me. And then uh, he continues, he's like, oh, I'm out, of, I'm out of food, I'm running out of water, Lord, please save me. And, you know, a few minutes later, a, a Coast Guard helicopter hovers above and a basket is lowered and he's like, oh, I'm good, God's going to save me. And he dies and obviously this is illogical at this point, but he arrives at heaven's gates and he says, God, why did you save me? He said, I did. In the boat, in the helicopter, but you got in the way. Your heart was consistently resistant to mine. Romans 9, Dave um, helped to simplify something beautiful about our God that salvation belongs to Him from top to bottom. Romans 10 is Paul's answer to Romans 9, it is the other side of the same coin. And so this morning, sort of the tagline, if we're going to understand this text and Lord willing it begin to connect to our lives here in Greenville, is that Israel, not God, is responsible for their rejection of him. While we can never take credit for our salvation, Romans 9, we're always held responsible for rejecting it. Does that sound difficult? Let's consider this this morning. The dilemma of Israel's unbelief in Jesus takes center stage in this text. How can the people for whom Christ came reject him? Why don't they believe, we should all ask? And the answer 
They don't believe because they stubbornly refused. And Paul goes to lengths to prove this. The end of our text from 18 to 20, let's, let's sort of take these one at a time really quickly to see how he defends the fact that it is not God's fault that he has been rejected by his own. Verse 18, Paul quotes Psalm 19. He, he is appealing to the testimony of nature and saying, just like every single one of us, God's people, of course, have seen the witness of God in his revelation of creation. And then it goes from general to specific. He quotes Deuteronomy 30 in, uh, it later in there. And, he, and he's using the words that they appeal to, Moses's, to prove to them that you had the scriptures. You didn't just have the world to, that was declaring the handiwork of God. You had the very heart of God in written form. It was right there in front of you. So much so, the signs were on the highway. The billboard was there. Israel, we are going, we're going to make you come to faith through jealousy in, these, in the faith that's been extended to those not a part of your families. If people groups without the benefit of Scripture could understand the gospel, surely all Israel, with all of its advantages, was able to. Instead, they became angry and jealous. In verse 21, Israel's unbelief is not God's problem, but theirs. They are doubly indebted to God, for they have had the testimony of nature and his written word before him. And their stubbornness here is not celebrated. It is cried over. So we have to ask the question, why were they so stubborn? Why did they resist their own? And I want to offer two partially helpful answers. First, God's uh, people, the Israelites, especially during Paul's time, had begun to misunderstand the nature of election itself. They began to believe and assume that they were the goal of God's salvation instead of the means. God elects to save the world. The story of Abraham creates this clear paradigm. Abraham, the world is broken and wrecked. No one wants me. I'm going to want you so that through your life of faithfulness to me, others will believe. This was lost on them. They began to think that the, the affection of God that they had was to end with them. Tragically. Second, according to this text, they were convinced there were two people in verse 12. There were, there, were, there were them, the Jews, and there were the Greeks. I don't know if anyone here is actually Greek, but um, the, the fact of the matter is there was literally people who were ethnically Jewish and then everyone else. That's it. There was an external differentiator. But Paul says, no, 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 no. There are two different types of people. But it's all on the heart. It's all about the trajectory of their trust. Look at verses 2 and 3. We see that, that, that Paul, he, he thinks about his brothers and sisters who have all the rights and privileges of being in God's family, and yet they reject them. He says they have a zeal for God, but not according to righteousness. In fact, they have sought their own form of it. 
Despite salvation staring them in the face, they continue to trust in their performance. Ignorant zeal is dangerous. Think about it. Passion without wisdom is deadly. Think about it in a relationship with another human being. If you exert your needs on them without them, all their story in your mind and the way that they're, they, they need you to relate to them, you will consume them. You think about this in terms of a uh, larger, uh, sort of bigger situation. We, we see that passion without wisdom is, is how we come up, how, where fanatics are born. This is where terrorism is born. This is real deal, guys. They had all the zeal, but they had no wisdom. In other words, you can believe all your heart in the wrong thing. A religion of our culture is that of sincerity. Have you heard this in different forms? The good life, the best life is to be the sincere version of yourself, is to have passion without wisdom. To be an activist, to have zeal, that's what matters. But friends, this morning what Paul is begging for us to hear, that it is not our zeal for God that saves us, it is his zeal for us that saves us. Again, Paul begins to allude and quote Deuteronomy 30 in verses 6 and 7 to demonstrate the disease that has plagued most of Israel's heart. Their self-performance is so endemic that they are practically trying to reach heaven or descend to hell to cover their sins. They have, they have moved life with God into a quest. They have separated the good law of God from the good law giver. And Paul is using their own. He does this all the time. He's using their own, Moses, Paul's own, to prove them wrong. You don't need to scale heaven. Christ has already come down. My brothers, my sisters, you don't need to go into the pit of hell. Christ has already risen from there. Moses knew, Paul says, that something more than trusting in our performance was required. We often think that a lack of faith is a result of mental assent, right? Or some sort of intellectual ignorance. If they just understood, they would believe, right? If I could just convince them that uh, Jesus does love them from the text. If, if, if Jewish people would just read Hebrews, right? Th th then they'd get it. Well, Paul goes to pain. He, he goes at lengths to, to say the problem is not with their minds. It's with their hearts. They don't need more information to understand. They've been given it all. Their self-sufficiency has become their stumbling block. We all, we all move in this direction. We do. Their heart has aimed its trust. It has lowered its anchor in their performance instead of the performance of another. Their ability to keep or to observe, this is their metric, not the work of someone else. And we all can feel this in our own hearts, right? 
The, the, the temptation to fall back into and, and to experience life with God uh, in, terms of, in terms of our ability to either get it together or, or to do something right. I, on, uh, this week I was at the barber shop and I was leaving and the guy took the, the cover off of me and revealed a guy who um, hadn't taken a shower and was wearing like gym clothes. And uh, in the room were men that were well-dressed and, and groomed and ready for the day. I was going to take a shower. This is why I went to the barber first. Um, and, and I walk out, and there's a particular man. Uh, he's like, man, I wish I could wear flip-flops to work. And, uh, you know, the, the, the good pastor in me who knows that Christ is his righteousness, uh, he, he's, he's like, you know, instead of saying, uh, yeah, that's great. You know, instead of just like going with it, I'd like to defend myself. Well, you know, I work, I work at other times of the day and like, and all this kind of thing. That's a light way to, of expressing our own sense of self-sufficiency. It's our heart, not our heads. There's a, no, there's a number of diagnostics I think we can all begin to ask ourselves so that we can discover the trajectory of our trust Ask yourself these questions. Is it hard for you to accept hospitality? Like, you just had a child and you despise that people keep bringing you meals. Uh, you, you, you've just come out of the hospital or you're somehow in need and people want to give to you and you just, it takes all that you can to help to keep them or, or to accept that rather. Can you accept gifts? Here's another one. Do you despair over your sin? Let me clarify that. I don't mean conviction. I mean despair. Some of us are in this shame performance cycle that we can't get out from under. And so instead of receiving the grace of God, we think that we're going to somehow become right before him by feeling worse about ourselves. Do you feel despair? Can you, can you accept forgiveness? Parents, where does your heart go when your children succeed and when they fail? That is the primary source of sanctification in my life right now. We have all these questions that we can begin to ask ourselves to see in what direction have our hearts found their deepest level of trust. And Paul is commanding us this morning, stop trusting yourself. So the alternative to sort of trust in self-performance is to trust in the performance of Jesus. And we see this in verse 4. At the end of sort of elevating their zeal for God, he rebukes them by saying, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Religious people, you've heard this, nice colorism. Religious people say, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. People in Jesus, believers say, I'm accepted, so I obey. And here Paul is calling them out as powerfully as he can. And he's inviting these Israelites to see that, that, that Christ isn't just a forgiving, merciful Savior to them. But he is their righteousness. See, Israel was living by the Home Depot model. How doers get more done. And the righteous live by the word of faith. Verse 8. Are you a doer? Are you a dunner? Are you living in light of the fact that Christ has done what he said he's going to do? Are you living in light of the fact that I need to do so that I can be sure that it's been done? You see, all of our hearts are offended 
by the gospel at some level. It feels too easy. It feels too cheap. You mean you could be a criminal and believe in Jesus and be saved? How dare he? Seriously. Our hearts despise how easy God's plan of salvation is. But those of us who find ourselves to be decent, upright, follow most of the rules, it is for us that God's plan of salvation is hard. Where we must continue to ask these questions within our heart. Paul knows that this arrogance keeps creeping in. The gospel is for those who have found their trust in in their own performance and is also for those who have found their trust in the other because we're all performers. We either perform uh, to a point to where we will be accepted or we sort of perform so much that we just don't ever want to be accepted. It's like, you just need to hate me, God. You can't love me. I'm just going to keep hating myself and I know you'll keep hating me. That's performance. So how do we grow? We pray and we speak. Look at verse one. Israel has stumbled over God's gift, righteousness, and Jesus. This only motivates Paul all the more to beg God to save them. How? Right? How can Paul's heart, and he did this earlier in chapter 9, how can it be moved in such a way that, God, please rescue these people from themselves? And it's precisely because his understanding of chapter 9 that he gets on his knees and begs God to save people in chapter 10. Let me put this clearly. The best missionaries are reformed folk who believe that God actually saves. Paul talks about this, that Apollos planted the seed Paul watered it, and only God gives the growth. It is because of his understanding of how God is is over all of salvation from beginning to end that he begs God to save people. Not that he might save them, not that maybe he will, not if they improve a little bit. No. He says, save them. Let me show this to you in verse 9. Confess and you will be saved. Verse 10, they are saved. Verse 11, will not be put to shame. Verse 13, will be saved. There is no optional response of God toward your faith in him. He will save. He will rescue. It is a movement between to, from self-sufficiency to dependence upon him. And it is precisely because God is sovereign in salvation that we don't stop asking people to exchange their version of righteousness for his. Because he will save them. And the good news is that your faith is not a condition of this. It is simply a gift of it. it doesn't, your faith doesn't make or break Christ's atonement. It's like the straw that helps you drink it in. It is not, it does not bear anything upon his work, but it is the way in which we experience him and his work. So all I mean to say is, if you leave this morning and and there's an ounce of faith that his performance has been won for you, know that that wasn't your idea. And since it wasn't, it can't be taken from you. Let me put it another way. Broken, rebellious, and sinful people don't come to Christ because they know they're elect. 
They come to him because they have a need. And Jesus is a great savior. It's in the context of this universal offer that Paul is commending to us. Because there is a universal refusal, the Bible says. It is in this context that we learn about God's work of salvation. It is the world's unanimous refusal of Jesus, of God himself, that makes election necessary. Indeed, it is the free proclamation of the gospel that God uses to save those whom he's chosen. Do you see? There are no terms and conditions when we talk to our own souls about what God has done in our lives. You know, that really fast person at the end of a commercial. All these side effects included. No. Here's Christ. Have him. He is yours. You see, Romans 9 is the iOS, the system that governs the world. Romans 10 is our clumsy fingers on the iPhone. Uh, Does this work? We've been given the opportunity to be ordinary for the sake of God's good and free grace. God intends to call people to himself through you, through us, through this church, through your family, in your home. In other words, our God is a God of means. He actually invites us in to participate in the work that he's doing. This is the work of salvation. The gospel, according to many of us, maybe America, Europe, I don't know, is this, God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard this before? You see, what that assumes, or excuse me, let me put it this way, Israel believed in this gospel. They believed that that they needed God's forgiveness, but they were oblivious of their need for his perfection. They knew that they could use his forgiveness when they failed, but they didn't realize that that he was the actual complete performer. In other words, you could say they didn't have a full picture of sin. You remember Dave talking about that last week? Because they didn't have a full picture of sin, they didn't have a full picture of mercy, and so they reduced God to a God who would wipe the slate clean on Monday so that they'd get back to work on Tuesday. This is a God who helps those who help themselves because when they fail, that's when he intervenes. But the good news that, Jesus, uh, that Paul is proclaiming about Christ is that he is a righteousness. I reminded our students of this last week. It is, do you know that Jesus not only forgives you of your sins, but he has lived perfectly for you. He has performed for you. Christ rescues performers from the tyranny of their effort with his own. With his own. Christ does not trust in his own performance, but has entrusted his entire life to the Father and to the Son. If it was up to him, I'm sure he would have taken the keys the devil handed him in the wilderness. If it was up to him, I doubt he would have let Judas Iscariot go. If it was up to him, he would have come right off that cross. I don't know his motives. I'm simply saying, of course, that he wasn't about his own performance. It was his performance that saved us. But it was the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit who propelled him and raised him from the dead. 
The invitation of us to place our trust in him began with him. He who suffered and was crucified as though he had an arrogant zeal for God that lacked wisdom. He understands that God's purpose and election is to love. He does. It is Christ alone whose performance is ours now. By faith, this is good news. Amen.